I would like to say, um, you all know Terry Gilliam, Terry Gilliam's work. Um, for me, he's one of the most visionary directors at work today. And he, the lineage of his kind of cinema goes all the way back to films like Fritz Lang's Metropolis in the silent era. You've probably also had a chance to see Phil Fisk's photographs outside. If you haven't, if you've just arrived for this, please do take some time afterwards to go out and look at these wonderful photographs. One of whom is of Terry Gilliam in a boat. Um, before I come to you, Phil, to talk about the genesis of this, Terry, you've appeared on camera playing various roles in Monty <laughs> Python and, and since. I'm just curious, do you actually like being photographed? Um, do I? <laughs> I don't know. I, I prefer to be photographed uh, like we were when we're working, when I'm not paying attention to the yeah. photograph, the minute it becomes formalized, you have to put a, you know, make a face, do something. Yeah. So uh, I don't feel as comfortable, but it is very easy. I mean, we're in Waterloo Park. Or yeah. no, where were we? We're it in, was Waterloo Park. It was Waterloo yeah, Park, yeah. yeah. And it was a beautiful day. Yeah. And uh, we just played. Well, I hope it's a bit like an actor. It was all prepared for you. You just had to walk in. And, and yeah. being a photograph, yeah. it's not a 20 minute scene. It's, uh, it's, no, no. it's just a single moment we had to get. So yeah, it wasn't too painful, was it? Uh, yeah, it was lovely. That was um, a nice way to uh, I escaped my computer for a few hours. That was the good thing. <laughs> so we have the photo behind here. Um, Phil, can you sort of talk about your thoughts when you've been approached with the commission by BAFTA to do this series? And well, the, the theme of it was, well, first of all, they gave us the theme of dreams, but it was about the, the craft of filmmaking. So we were doing uh, um, everyone from costume designers, special effects experts, as well as directors and actors. But we, in each case, I thought we had to try and get to the root of what their craft was. And I suppose with a director like Terry, it was about his imagination and his ability to kind of you know, visualize what he wants before he even does it as well. I mean, he's fantastic at that. So we kind of tried to, I kind of came up, tried to come up with ideas that would reference that. And I, the imagination thing just took me back to Morris Sendak and the, uh, where, where the wild, wild things, things are. are. And the idea that if you, you know, and I think it starts with childhood. I know Terry's no longer a child, but I think it, it, it would have gone back to that. So I think it was a case of just doing something about the kind of limitless possibility of imagination in a child, and so that book cover was the reference. We did ring London Zoo, we wanted to put him in a, an ape enclosure, and we said it's Terry Gilliam and he's going to be in a, an ape enclosure, but they said it, no, it somehow didn't fit their brand. Um, really? Yeah. So we... Uh, Aged animals are serious business, aren't they? Yeah, it's not for fun, know, not for pleasure. But I thought, you know, that for me, again, there was lots of other references you know, yeah. to his films in that, but, you know, this was just as good, I thought. So. I can imagine the office of uh, London Zoo tomorrow getting a phone call from someone saying, yeah, hi, this is Terry Gilliam. What is it about me that you don't actually <laughs> like? Just, just, just be honest. <laughs> Terry, I'm, I remember seeing Seth Banks' show, a repeat of it, from the 1970s um, with Ingmar Bergman. And he sat on the sofa and these white double doors behind him. And he looks uneasy, and they haven't actually started the interview yet, and this is right at the beginning. He looks uneasy, keeps looking around, and finally says, what, what's behind those doors? And you can tell the crew, no one knows. And <laughs> no idea. So he gets up, opens the doors, comes back, sits down, and suddenly you have this amazing depth of field. Brilliant. And it's an absolutely beautiful composition. Yeah. Just you being a director too, being directed by someone else, how much of a challenge is that to you, to not go, yeah, wh why are you doing that? No, I, don't think, I didn't interfere at all. No, I'm, I'm really happy to take direction because yeah. I would like others to respect me as much as they respect me <laughs> when we're being directors. Now, I don't know, no, it's fun. It was, it was set up, it was easy. I think the only thing we, we had to play a bit with was how we got the scarf to look like it was trailing <clears throat> in the wind. I'm, I'm looking at the picture right now and I realize the title should be The Ship of Fool. <laughs> <laughs> Not Fool. Cross my mind as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it feels like, for me, it's like the idea of embarking on yeah. any, any of the projects I do, knowing full well that one gets lost. There are many rocks out there to damage the thing. It's, so it's about hope. Well, you helped me as well, because of course the, the wind changed direction and the smoke was going in completely the wrong direction. Yeah, and you just said, this is what happens on all my films. Yeah. You've just got to embrace it. <laughs> so we laughed, yeah. and we just got on with it. 
Yeah. And listening to you earlier as well, uh, Phil, talking about this photo, these leaves were not in this part of no, the No, no, they came from South London. That's <laughs> <laughs> a better class of leaf. Yeah, it is. I think it lowered the tone sufficiently. No, it was too I felt comfortable. It was too manicured. Yeah, we, yeah. Had, we had to kind of cover it up a bit, yeah. It was a beautiful spot you chose. That was what was nice, to walk into what is going to be the photograph and realize... Ooh, this is a good guy. He's got a good eye. It's, you, you, it's that. You walk into it, you know, you're in good hands because you had a clear idea, a clear choice. The light, the sad thing is we lost the best light, just like in every film I do. It's just getting darker. Again, but you yeah. just said, Phil, just embrace it's it. What it is. It's, a, it's what it is. Because there was that magical moment. But, but you're dealing, and this is what happens in films, and that's why... It's nice to see that still photography is just as uh, uh, susceptible to the change of nature and weather and everything. Because you come there, there's a perfect moment, and then certain things don't work correct. We were struggling with how are we going to do the ropes and all that yeah, stuff. And, and it happens. It just happens. And yet, we still produce something wonderful. Can you talk about the influences that you have, not just with this photo, but across all of the photos in this exhibition? Well, I talked. Well, I did talk about that earlier today. But I mean, well, I kind of went back to Philip Halsman, who was the guy who was doing the Dali. Kind of, and there was something I've just admired about the <laughs> trying to get everything in camera, and slightly kind of making a challenge for yourself, really. So I kind of wanted, and, and I like the fact that they had so much access. And had, I felt had, like if you have a crazy idea, yeah. you just have to put it out there, and you don't pull your punches. And I thought. Uh, so he was the kind of inspiration. If I had known that was your inspiration, I would have brought a cat that we could throw into the picture. <laughs> I don't, people know this picture, I assume. Yes, well, I, well, I hope so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Uh, one of the things, particularly with this image, um, I know it's not the same colours that the photographer Gregory Crudson uses, but in the sense of creating a whole world, this, that I, I sort of drew a parallel with his work particularly with this photo. He is an influence and I really love his work. I think there's probably a bit more humor, I try and be more kind of humorous, but I think the Andy Serkis picture that we did was almost completely modeled on a kind of Edward Hopper stroke kind yeah. of Crudson in that kind of Americana, you know, Americana, the cafe and the lighting and the color tones in that. Terry, in your work, um, because one of the things that I always love watching your films is how beautifully composed they are. And some of uh, the sequences or some of the shots in your films are like these amazing tableau. Have you ever been sort of influenced directly by photographers with any of your films? Always. Influence, the word is steel, from. <laughs> Let's start with steel. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's all of that. It's, it's paintings and photography. That's what I do when I'm starting any project, getting involved. I'm just going through books, waiting for something to go bing, bing. Well, that's a good idea. I could turn it a little bit. Nobody will spot that I'm stealing that. And, and you, you work from that, and anything that triggers the imagination is the key. And once, assuming one has some imagination, you can then build on that. But there's always a spark somewhere that has been somebody else's work. And photography has been it's always exactly critical. what you do. You just yeah. read, you, you go through lots of stuff, but you don't just narrow down your search. You just you have to yeah. anything. Yeah, it could be it could be a line in a book even. So not not even just visual things. You know, metaphors. So. No, but you're right about because. I mean, I, I think I read more and look at more images, whether photo photographs or paintings, than I do watch films. And a word, a sentence, can just... It's magical because what's great about um, a sentence, say, or a description of something, is you've got to do all the work. The words are yeah, there that start it. Yeah, that's yeah, what... Yeah. It's, to it's really to whip your imagination into, you know, a gallop, basically. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I've been reading uh, Gilliam-esque, which is Terry's beautiful illustrated memoir that recently came out. Um, and I know that in the past, I've, I've heard you talk about the influence of Jan Schwankmeyer and another Czech filmmaker, Carol Zeman, who also made a, uh, an adaptation of Munchausen. It's interesting to read in this, though, other sort of filmmakers that have, you've been interested in over the years, Richard Lester and also Stan van der Beek, who unfortunately... <laughs> His, his film, uh, Death Breath, has really been overlooked yeah. in film histories. No, Stan Van Der Beek and, Stan, and uh, Brackage, Stan Brackage as well, the two did cut-out animation, and that was the first time I'd ever seen cut-out animation. It was in New York during the 60s, the early 60s. And there was one in particular that always stuck in my head so that when eventually I walked into the animation business, it was, it was the thing that it triggered it all. And it was... A, it was a picture of Richard Nixon, his photograph cut out, and his mouth did like 
exactly like I did in Python stuff. And he, there was a foot, a cut-out foot in his mouth. And so, it, a simple thing, the man's got his foot in his mouth. And it was just so funny looking at this. And, and I think that that is all I really remembered from uh, his work. Uh, and it was years later, I think his daughter uh, was trying to get me to say something nice about her father because he'd, uh, he'd been forgotten, effectively. Yeah. And, uh, and so I did say, that this is what, where I started from is my, I couldn't do Disney, so I did Vanderbeek. <laughs> and, and she showed me a lot of his work. And I had no idea how much I'd stolen from the man. I'd forgotten it all. I just remembered the Nixon foot in his mouth moment. And I'd stole, because he was chopping heads and things were coming out. I, what a confession we've, we've got out of me today. <laughs> Put the light on and then, you know, they threaten me with being nice to me. And, and I spill the beads. <laughs> Twelve monkeys. I find it amazing reading in this book of how the audience reacted to it originally. Um, mm. You had one of the test screenings and it was yeah. incredibly negative because I find it astounding that people would come out of that and feel negative towards it. Well, that has to do with uh, research screenings. I think. Uh, in America, they do, uh, what's it called, NR, NRG? National Research Group, I think yeah. they're called. And they do these screenings. And the audience tends to be people who are found during the day with nothing to do in shopping centers. <laughs> and that's where they seek to recruit them. And so they're offering these people a chance to see a free film. Fantastic. And so you go to these screenings, and all the studio executives are fluttering around, nervous, frightened, terrified, because one or two of them may have their heads above the parapet concerning that film, and they get chopped off and the film doesn't work. So we had this screening, and Mick Audsley uh, and I were sitting in the audience, and it played really well, because you're sitting in the audience, you can tell if people are bored, bored, listless, excited, you know, all that. And at the end, uh, there was a, um, a documentary made called The Hamster Factor, which shows all this. And Mick and I are at the end, talk, whispering to each other, saying, brilliant, wonderful, they really love this, it's just great. And then there's another shot in this documentary, me going outside while all these people fill in their forms about how much they liked and what they didn't like and what could be better. And I'm now talking to the producer and his wife and a couple other people, like, it was great, absolutely fantastic. And then the scores come in. And <laughs> we've got a failure on our hand according to the scores. And it's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's a good documentary for anybody who wants to make a film because you can see that part of the process which I've never seen documented yeah. before. And you're caught in this thing because you know, you've spent a couple of years doing this thing and now you've been judged by this audience of whoever they might be and you failed. What do you do? And uh, you're surrounded by studio executives who are even more panicked because they will lose their jobs. I just will find it'll be difficult to get money for the next film, but their heads are going to roll. And, and so change, change, change is the pressure. And this happens to every film director who has to put their film through that system. And I have always been determined to have around me at the end, I keep saying, it's the foxhole for the final battle. Who's in there with you? And... Uh, Anyway, we had a meeting the next day with the producer, the writers, and we said, this is nonsense. This film works. It's powerful. And there was only one thing that I, from gleaning all the information I could from the cards, because one of the things about these cards is it's the first time these people are empowered to have any say in what they get to watch in the cinema, and they take full advantage of it. Uh, and they grab that moment, and it's quite interesting to watch each time this happens. And... And the only thing I did in that film, because the pressure was on to change this, cut that out, do this that way, and we changed one bit of music uh, which was too emphatic about the growing relationship between Madeline Stowe and Bruce Willis. And it's the only thing we changed, and we made it more ambiguous so you, the audience, could decide, is it going forward? You didn't know. And that was the only thing that was changed. The film went out and was number one for I don't know how many weeks. So that's why you start approach the, approaching these screenings with uh, both trepidation and complete contempt. Uh, and luckily in the end, the reason, and the simple fact, the reason uh, the studio didn't force me to change anything, because they were in a position to do so, is that I made sure that 
Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis were on my side and they couldn't touch the three of us. <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah. Bruce and Brad, I had very, my power was minimal compared to theirs. And so the studio tries very hard to separate as well, to split. Splitting is the key. And if you get, if Bruce was unhappy or Brad, then we would have been in trouble. But yeah. you keep people involved, you embrace everybody that's involved in the project. It's not my project, it's our project, is the way you approach it. Again, no, I've been listening to you a number of times speaking um, after films and, and in interview, it's always impressed me the way that you talk about crew. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the editor, Mick Audsley. Um, there are some directors who you would believe had no one else on a set when they were making the film except the mm -hmm. actors because they're the visionary. And that's never been the case with you. And likewise, this, this is not something that you shot with Terry alone in, in a woods. There, there's a crew behind everything. Perhaps you could talk first about the crew that you had with this oh, show. Oh, it's much, much more. <laughs> Come on. I've got, yeah. There's kind of, you know... It's, it's, a good crew I, is a I good a, crew. I do have a regular big. team of people who I know and, you know, who, who I think are into the ideas as much as I am. I think that helps. Um, probably a bit like a director, I'd imagine. You know, they're, they're not just people who are there for the sort of pittance that we kind of pay them. They're there because they like the ideas and I think they kind of like the photography. So they're kind of enthusiastic at every level, which is really key. And then I do have someone to help me with all the post-production. Uh, so the retouching that we've done and putting all the pictures together. And again, you have to have someone that you've worked with for a long time, and it's all about relationships. Yeah. And with each person... I mean, you made me look so young. That's what I think is wonderful. <laughs> I love the blonde hair and everything. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, um, with each photo, are you someone who kind of shares the idea, the concept that you have with people rather than saying, OK, turn up, I need leaves here, I need... No, I'd there. share it with everybody. That's yeah. the idea. And it, we're already, you know, it's three people, you know, on the day, and... So it's, it's quite easy to have that kind of intimacy and trust. And yeah, exactly, when things start going wrong, yeah. you know, you don't want people kind of losing their enthusiasm just because it's cold and yeah. wet and, it, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and the whole thing looks like it's about to fall apart. You have to keep trying, so. And Terry, you mentioned uh, the hamster factor. I think any film student, anyone interested in making a film should see the hamster factor I'm, and Lost in La Mancha together yeah. as a double bill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> both is a cautionary tale as well as <laughs> the way to do things. Um, but in Lost in La Mancha, you, you see, seem so generous in the way that you share your, your vision with people. Has that always been the case throughout your whole career, sort of wanting not to just have people working with you, but to have them on board with the whole concept? It's kind of, yeah, I mean, it, from the beginning, it's been like that. It's also partly, it's, it's, it's not quite as altruistic as you're painting it, because I like people to share the blame as well as the credit. <laughs> uh, and so, but the point is, it's... It's who you work with. You mm -hmm. choose, hopefully, if you're lucky, to work with a team of really dedicated, passionate, uh, skilled people. And then the trick is, because in films, it's such a hierarchical system. I mean, you're dealing with crews of 150 to it. It's mm -hmm. a lot. So the hierarchy is there, and I hate hierarchies. Mm -hmm. even, even when I'm the top guy in the hierarchy, I don't like it, because it, people seem to work from fear rather than anything else, or caution or covering their ass, whatever way you do it. And I've always tried to include everybody. I, I remember the first film that I did on my own, well, like, without the other five Python lingerers, you know, <laughs> I, you know I don't know, the, the ones who held me back for years. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, Are you ever afraid that one of them's in an audience in that venue? No, they're too old, <laughs> too old. I think half of them are dead already. They just haven't told the world. Uh, anyway. <laughs> It's, 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 I mean, I'm doing Jabberwocky and I got myself in, uh, or was time bands, I don't know, it doesn't matter, these are a long time ago, and I got myself in a corner where the only, the shot was there, and the set was back there, and there was a corner here, and I was there, literally, metaphorically, physically, in every way, in a corner, mm -hmm. and I couldn't make this shot work, and the prop guy, he was busy sweeping up around me, so he said, Terry, why don't you just turn the camera the other direction? My first response was, as any leader was, fuck off. Uh, and then I, I, I thought two seconds later that, Jesus, right. he's right. And, and ever since that moment, I've always listened, and I encourage people to come up and tell me what they think, because mm -hmm. there's such a terror in the business to step forward and get out of line. And I really want people to come forward and say, what about this? Because if I'm not confident, confident enough about what I'm doing, then any information is, is useful. I think most people, when they 
don't listen, it's because it's kind of not confident. Mm -hmm. And so they're projecting power and, and, and all of that nonsense. And I just want as much help as I can get. And at every point, there's somebody with a slightly different angle on what you could be doing. Now, it can be very annoying if it's coming in all the time. Mm -hmm. So you just mm -hmm. have to learn to develop a balance where people mm -hmm. know their opinions are listened to, but also, you know, don't just keep banging in every two seconds with something. Because, I mean, I never approach the films as if it's my film. Whenever I hear, hear people talking about their film, like my last film, I hate it. And I find myself doing it occasionally. I hate it because it's our film. It's all these people are involved. Uh, I couldn't do it on my own. And mm -hmm. they couldn't do what they do on their own. So it's embracing everybody. And then off we go and hopefully, and, we just need a bigger boat than that one that you had me in. <laughs> <laughs> you, there, actually, in there, if you look really closely, there's really hundreds of tiny people in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think you're also generous in the references that you've revealed. I was looking through your book, and you've already demystified a lot of stuff today. And I think I was talking a lot about that earlier. Yeah. With, I think there's, I think quite often there's this whole idea that you have this, this, the magic of filmmaking is this kind of mysterious thing that we can't impart to people. I think you've already exposed some things already where you get your references from, and your yeah. book literally just gives people, yeah. these are my ideas, and I'm going to put them on a page for you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I did the same thing this morning with what we were when we were talking about yeah. photography. It's no. not magic. <laughs> no. It? You know, it's... Uh, and I think that's good. To demystify, you know, mystifying stuff is normally a way of just preserving your position. Correct. It's a way of maintaining yeah. power. So I think talking about stuff and being very open is... Yeah, that's what I, I hate whenever I read about my vision. I do have a vision, yes, but yeah. I can't do it on my own. If I was even, just yeah. drawing again, I could do my vision and do it. It's mine, everything, but that's not I had a quote from Stephen Frears. I don't know whether it was someone else. Someone asked about his vision, and he said, I'm a filmmaker, not a fucking psychic. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's, uh, there was a great interview with Ken Loach. Um, I think it was when he won the Palme d'Or at Cannes for The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And someone asked him about you, know, you as a filmmaker. He said, no, I'm a director. And he said, my films say at the end, directed by Ken Loach. Yeah. He said, you will never see a title on a Ken Loach film saying a film by Ken Loach. Yeah. He said, because I would hate to go onto the set of my next film and have everyone on there think, or my thinking mm -hmm. that everyone is on that set thinking, what a tosser. Mm. Yeah. It's, you just directed it. You didn't yeah. make this thing. He's a better socialist than I ever was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I've got a, a Terry Gilliam film up there a couple of times. It, I sort of fought, fell into it because it was, I don't know, it just happened. And then you look back at it and think, what, what a wanker. <laughs> why, why is he doing that? But then as, as, as someone else pointed out, there's also the marketing exercise that you... Yeah, I know, that's it. But it's like, I mean, to be honest, I mean, who are my gods? Fellini, uh, Kurosawa, uh, Bergman. I didn't know who they worked with. I just knew that. And it's that, that's, the whole business does function that way, to focus it on... Hopefully, Spielberg, all of this stuff, these are the ones, oh, you hope to be one day. Bergman comes up, because you mentioned it. When we were making Brothers Grimm, Peter Starmar, who plays, played in a couple of films of mine, or see, I said the word, mine, uh, <laughs> bad. Um, <laughs> bad dog. I was going to sit in the corner now. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he said, what was interesting, because you know, I've always thought Bergman was so solemn and door and so intellectual. We were doing Brothers Grimm. He said, God, this has been as much fun as working with Ingmar Bergman. He said, Bergman, we were telling jokes the whole time. We were laughing because the work is serious. Mm -hmm. And what you don't want to have to do is to be, you know, there's the work, and then there's who you are. And you've got to make a kind of division in there. And we're all together, and the rain is pouring down. It's freezing cold. Let's tell some funny stories. Let's make each other laugh. Because we're going to, in two seconds, when the, that camera's finally ready, we're going to go out there and it's going to be utter hell. <laughs> I, I want to come back to something that Phil's been talking about over the last few days in terms of one of the other photographs, uh, Nina Gold, the casting director. And it, it's something that you've... That kind of interaction between filmmakers and yeah, casting. Because I, I, I had to research what a casting director did, and it was difficult to try and work out how to do it in terms of the fact that, unlike everyone else we photographed, you know, you're talking about the filmmakers. Yeah. That's what the exhibition was about, the, the makers behind it. So hopefully we produce something a little bit more democratic uh, mm. than in the past. But, yeah, how have casting directors... 
How involved are they in you, with you, in terms of their creativity and coming up with ideas? I mean, have you worked with someone in particular, I, or have you? Yeah. I mean, you know. in, in England, it's Irene Lamb. She's done all my films right. in England. Margie Simkin in America, and they're people that I trust totally, utterly, mm -hmm. and they're coming up with ideas. I mean, I've got when I'm working on something, I've got my own ideas. Who should be that? And then they come up with uh, a left field idea that, whoa, that's good, that's really exciting. And I think that's the key, is you want people who are really thinking around what you're doing rather than getting, for me, it's mm. getting stuck in, quote, my vision. And it's marching <laughs> along like this, and I realize I'm getting too trapped in it. It's getting too narrow. Uh, I know where I'm going, but I don't have to be on the straight path. We can meander a bit, folks, and we might get something more interesting in the meandering than going on the superstrata straight to where you're going. And that's where they would come in. The and they all come in, and they come up with other ideas, better ideas, and, uh, and make me rethink why I'm doing something, or they discover another aspect of the character. So they'd even feed back on the script as well. No? Everybody gets yeah. to do that. Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> that's the painful that's, part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's that. Or they know something about a particular actor that I don't know. They've seen something in them. Well, they would go to see all these films so, you know, that you, yeah. you don't go and see. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> another interesting aspect with, with your work is that of, of, of the body of films that you've directed, my favorites, unlike a lot of other directors, cross ones that you've written yourself and ones that you've collaborated on. Mm. And I find that really fascinating because there are other directors mm. for whom I tend to find it's actually when they work on someone else's script that I really like their work. Me um, too. All. <laughs> all 12 <when> Monkeys, <laughs> King. Those are a couple of my favorites. But then you've got Tideland. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is, is amazing. Yeah, but we have the advantage of Mick Cullen's book. In Thailand, Thailand is a film about uh, a, a young girl um, just, just pre-puberty, uh, pu pre right there. The hormones are beginning to course her. It's, uh, you know, her father's a junkie, her mother dies of drug overdose, and she ends up um, with her dead father's corpse in, in, a, in, a, in almost an abandoned house that used to be his mother's house, way out in the middle of nowhere. Okay, friendly little tale about love and uh, the many things. But what was interesting is the girl in the book was like 12 years old. Casting the girl was a nightmare because you couldn't, because she had to have a certain kind of um, uh, sexuality, but an innocent sexuality. And we couldn't find a 12-year-old that had that. They'd already been tarnished so much by television, rock and roll, MTV and everything. They didn't have any innocence left. They were all strutting their stuff and shaking the booty. And, and, I thought, this is, and it ended us, we went on and on down the line, and it ended up being a nine and a half year old girl to play the part, who had both the kind of awareness uh, of the sexuality of the world via television and movies, basically, and yet a complete and utter innocence inside herself. And that's what was a really interesting thing with casting. There's, in the book, you could believe it, but on film, you couldn't believe a girl of 12 to have the two qualities, and, and, and that goes on and on. It's, it's, uh, that's kind of it for Castillo on that one. That's, 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 that's answered the question, yeah. though. It's good. Yeah. Is she an unknown? Actually, she had made her first film when she was four years oh, old. Okay. Uh, but she was basically unknown, but she had been in little films in Canada. And she just, we, we, when we met her, and she came in, because the ca actually, that was an interesting one. The casting director didn't like her for whatever reason. There were these other girls who were, say, 11 years old, who had a lot more, what, style? What do you say? I don't know. They knew more things to do, to pretend to be acting, to pretend to being somebody. And they kind of irritated me because they were like child actors that had learned all these little tricks. And I saw this, um, there had been a, a screen test I was working in um, Toronto and in Vancouver, the screen test was sent in and there was this tiny little girl, Mrs. Jodell, with these wonderful eyes. And I just thought it was amazing. So this was the one I said, we gotta bring her in. The casting director was saying, no, 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 no. I haven't worked with this cast casting director su subsequently. But, <laughs> but, but no, it's fair enough. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. arguing, that's good, that's yeah. good. And making me more and more determined, that kid has got it. And she came in and the little girl was just, Extraordinary, 
And I think the casting director was frightening, frightened because you're dealing with a nine and a half year old child who is on screen the whole time. And that's being pragmatic, practical, and all yeah, that. Yeah. And yet, once I discovered that Jodell had been in movies since she was four, <clears throat> and she ended up being the, probably the eldest person on the set, I mean, emotionally, <laughs> mentally, she was the real <laughs> professional. <laughs> Um, I want to take some audience questions. Before I do, um, just coming back to this photo, uh, in your memoir, Gilliamesque, quite early on, you say you have an ambivalence about the relationship between the rural and the urban. It's been a major underlying theme of all the films you've made. And then you go on to dis uh, describe cities as man-made excrescences conspiring to obscure our view of the natural world. And yet, when a lot of people think about the films that you've directed, they immediately associate, um, whether you want to call it steampunk, post-industrial world, technology gone wild. Mm. And yet here you are in a boat sailing off into the forest. But that's the real me. That's what's nice about that. Now I'm still a kid from the country. And uh, the city is the thing that in many ways drives me because I'm angry about so much of, uh, the, of what we do. Uh, as, as human beings, and it's all condensed very nicely in the city, uh, and our distance from the natural world is, is dangerous. I mean, that's why, okay, I live in Highgate. I finally rose to where I need to be in a big city like London. <laughs> Highgate, with the heath there at the doorstep, and trees, it's got the best oxygen in the city. But I've also got a house in Italy, which is literally in the country. It's very basic, very simple. No TV, no television. Uh, water comes from a well. It's 80 meters deep, thank you. And, it's, uh, and, and, and it's, that's it. But the problem there, I'm not creative because I'm happy. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> it's stay in the city. Kind of in, that, in that way, thinking, thinking about you, you, almost, you strike me almost as the Sam Larry, um, Jonathan Price character in Brazil. Mm. But, it's on his flights of fantasy. He goes out into the natural world, yeah, but then yeah, gets pulled yeah, back or, yeah, or yeah. Really mired by the tall buildings. But that, that's a kind of character that you see time and time again in your films. And thinking about their outlook, I, I kind of always have this idea of you as something of a romantic. Do you something see yourself? Something of? We could remove that. <laughs> a little edit. Okay, a, we'll go for dinner. Romantic. We'll go for dinner. No, no. <laughs> no I'm, I'm completely lost in romanticism. I'm, I'm a, listen, I'm a curmudgeon, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a utilitarian. Uh, we decided I was a contrarian. contrarian yeah. But at the heart of it all, I'm really romantic. And that's what makes life so miserable. Because <laughs> life isn't like that. Years ago, it was really funny. Because in, in some, the Sundance Institute, where you know, the, the, the aspiring filmmakers gather and meet people who've already done a few things in the life. Blah, blah. And Stanley Donnan was there, and he was in my team of professionals. I was in his team of professionals, let's get it clear. Um, and it was Volker Schlondorf, Stanley Donnan, and myself. And Stanley had made all those great, great musicals, starting, you know, Singing in the Rain, uh, Funny Face, uh, uh, oh, there's millions of them, great musicals. And I said to him, because he, he did a talk, and it reminded me, and we saw clips of all of his work, and I said, oh, Stanley, if only I had seen this before I'd put the uh, credits on, on Fisher King, you would have been, it would be there, you would be getting the credit for that film, because I said, you made me believe in all that romance and beauty and music, the ability to dance, all of those things, and he said, yes, the problem with that is, I believed in it too. I've had four marriages now. <laughs> I can't afford any more. So there's the reality and then there's the dream. <laughs> and you mentioned The Fisher King. Um, again, reading in your book, um, I found out that a beautiful script by Richard Lagravenese, but you were the person who came up with the, the ballroom sequence in Grand Central Terminal, which but, is one of the great romantic moments of 1980s cinema. But it's kind of like what no, one does. You, you're confronted with things. You try to find the right tree, to take a whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You're trying to put a photo together. And the scene originally was uh, Jeff Bridges in the in Grand Central Station, and and he hears a black poor black woman singing some beautiful song, and he has a moment there where he just suddenly is romantic. It's a romantic moment, and. Uh, 
But it, it isn't expressed other than the fact that something in his heart changed. That's all that's in the script. And we were in Grand Central Station. I was looking from um, the just the terrace above the thing. And with the, uh, we were on a location scout, the producers, everybody was there. And, and I was watching all the commuters. And it was getting faster and faster because it was rush hour. And you'd think it was like a swarm of bees. And something in my head went, went pop. And I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if all these people rushing past each other glanced at the person they were passing and fell madly in love and started dancing? I don't know. It just happened. You know, that's that's how it works. That's yeah, right. how it works for all of us who get inspired or have ideas. And all the producers said, "Wow!" And I said, "Of course, we're not going to do it because that's expensive. That's a big thing." And they said, "No, we have to do it." And we did it. And it is what it is. Because it was finding a way in cinema that would express the feeling. Because on the page. I didn't know how to express it, uh, what, what Richard had written. I understood the feeling, but I didn't know how to express it. And that just seemed to be the way to do it, and it, it worked. I can't remember which critic said it, but I thought that they wrote a beautiful line when they said about that scene, that's as close as cinema is ever going to get of the feeling of what it's like to smell someone and just be so attracted to that smell. And you see the two characters walking amongst those dancers, and it is that moment where that's someone great. passes by. Yeah. Now, but that's, that's what's wonderful. You, you, know, you have an idea, you've got a, enough people around you that can make mm. it a reality, and it has the desired effect. That's all it is, nothing more. That's what, why we do what we do. <laughs> Let's take some questions from the audience. We've got some roving mics. If we could turn the lights up, please. Someone down here, and then is there anyone further over this side? Yes, someone at the back. So we'll go to the person here, if you can keep your hand up. Um, thanks very much. Fascinating um, listening to you talk. I was curious about the writing process. I know you were saying sometimes you write with other people, sometimes you adapt from things. Is there, um, is there a side of it you enjoy more? Or do, you, do, you, do you find it easy to be objective about the stuff that you write in as much as you can about adaptations? Or, um... No, I'm, I'm not objective. I just get depressed. That's what it tends to be. That's why it's much more enjoyable and much more productive working with somebody else because you can throw ideas back and forth. It's what, I mean, I, when I'm sitting on my own, I actually don't write well on my own. I have ideas on my own. I have you know, structured, structural concepts and all that. But I really need somebody to bounce it back and forth. And that's, that's great fun. Fisher King was the first one I had ever done that I hadn't uh, co-written. And it was a big leap, because I never wanted to do other people's things. But when I read that script, I just understood those characters, and I just felt Richard has got it, and it was a joy. It was, it was really nice, that and 12 Monkeys, to be able to work on somebody else's script, because I wasn't defending anything. I was trying to you know, make it better if I could, and not rough it up if I could as well. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I just wonder if you could tell us anything about how you approach editing. Um, editing? Yeah, what, if, what you're invo how, how involved you are and in the process. Well, at some point I finally had realized I had to get somebody else to do the work as well because I become very obsessive when I'm editing on my own. I just spend far too long fretting about one frame and I get lost in it. So working with great editors is fantastic. I mean, in this country, it's effectively been Mick Audsley and, uh, and Leslie Walker have done most of the film. I used my old buddy Julian Doyle. Uh, we worked on um, Brazil and um, Time Bandits. But I'm in there every day. That's what I do. I want to be surprised by what they come up with. Because I'm not, I'm not a director that can say, I know exactly how this should cut as I'm shooting it. I know at that point, OK, that, I'll just cut, cut at that point in the dialogue to that. I don't, I don't know that. I really don't. I know what shots I need, and I, there are certain moments I know how it's going to cut together because I've storyboarded it. But, but when you actually get in the editing room, it's the best part of filmmaking because all the things that went wrong during the shoot, all your failures, all the surprises are now there. You've got the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. There's no more. That's it, folks. And now, can you assemble this thing, and will it be a picture that's close to the one you had in your mind when you started? And, that, and that's what you do, and you pull things around, scenes that I've shot that belong there, uh, moved there. This, it, it's finding the film in the editing room, because there's the one you have in your mind when you're writing it, then there's the one that you have in your mind when you're shooting it, and then there's the one that you discover 
that you made when you're in the editing room. So I'm there all the time. I'm every day. I don't know what else to do. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, I wanted to ask about your relationship to the audience when you make a film, because after watching yeah, everything, I realized that one of the underlying themes that you have is like some kind of awareness or consciousness about what's going on around you. All your, most of your characters have a lot of questions that they want answers for. And I wanted to ask if that's something that comes from your self-reflection, from yourself, or if that's uh, kind of a question you're throwing out, trying to get the audience to ask. When, when, you, when you start working on a film, you're not thinking about the audience. You're thinking about what you're trying to write, what's bugging you, what, what do you want to say. And I'm always worried and concerned about who we are, what are we doing, what society is, how the world functions. And so it, it starts from that. And so it, it starts from a selfish position. I'm confused about the world. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. Let's play with that. Is there a story there? But I'm not making films. I am making films for myself. I'm very selfish. But I want it to be seen by a large number of people. I always love an audience. It's not, this is a work of art. You can choose to like it or not. No, I'm trying to communicate with people. And I'm, I'm wanting to raise questions. I want people to think. I want them to look at the world in maybe a slightly different way. Ah, maybe if we look at it that way, it makes more sense. All of those things, I just basically want to wake up audiences, make them consider the world we're living in and who we are and how we should be living together. Uh, the fantasy stuff, I don't even do fantasy. I, I've never thought of that for a moment. Uh, I think I do imagination and dreams. Fantasy is something else. That's bullshit. <laughs> My stuff is, is, is the tension between mm. the dream, the fly, and being pulled back to earth. It's that tension of the two. And that's what, who we are. And I think everybody has it. I mean, most people, not most people, but when you look at the big films, I find very little reality in them. I see just, it is fantasy. It's like, oh, it's going to be all wonderful. And then we mm. tie it up in a nice little bow at the end and say, ah, you go home and life is wonderful. Mm. No. I want people to go home and say, what the fuck have I just seen? <laughs> and does it have any, any relationship to me, my world, or the, the world at whole? That's what it's about. And for those who make the other films, they reach a bigger audience, is all I can say. <laughs> but there's an arrogance about so many of them because they actually claim to, to know an answer to something. And it's an, yeah. it's great cinema is like any kind of great art. It throws up questions but doesn't have the arrogance to yeah. suggest they but know look, the answer. Look at the end of 2001. What the fuck is that really mean? I mean, there's a bit of hopefulness with the sort of... Mm. But you don't really know. It opens a big question. Then you look at Closing Colors and... Uh, third kind, and oh, a lot of people in rubber suits uh, come out and it's all happy. And you go, wait, wait, that's an answer. I don't want answers, I want questions, frankly. <laughs> Hello. Um, when you said about Peter Stormare having such a great time making Brothers Grimm, I read as well that Oliver Reed said the same thing when he was in Baron Munchausen. So my question is, what do you feel that you are giving to your actors to have, make them have such a great time on your films? <laughs> Peter Stormare saying how much he enjoyed the, the pleasure of yeah, I know. and the fun. I, I, don't know. I, I don't know how to direct movies. I've never known how to direct movies. I don't know how to direct actors. All I know is how to have a good time with people. <laughs> and it, it really is like that. I mean, I spend a lot of effort to hopefully choose the right people, to cast the right people. Because, okay, now we know we're on a... And then spend time drinking and eating with each other to say, this is the film we're trying to make. Trying to just talk... Through. So we all begin to think we're making the same film. That's part of it. And then when we're on the set, trying to make it as enjoyable as possible, because at one hand, I'm sort of pushing and shouting, move, 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 let's go. On the other hand, if somebody comes up with a good joke, come on, we stop. <laughs> it's, it's trying to make an enjoyable process. My, my deal, my feeling with actors, and because I really, I didn't take any courses in acting. I don't, I don't know a lot of the terminology that one... Uh, you, you learn while you're taking courses in acting. And all I know is that if people are relaxed and feel they're in confident hands, that I'm not going to make them look like a fool, and they're allowed to play, it happens. Because that's all actors are, players. They get to be children again. Come on, they get to pretend to be the boogeyman. They get to pretend to be a hero. They pretend. It's all let's pretend. So if we can agree to pretend, 
and agreed to even take chances and go where we might not normally go. I remember when we made Brazil, I had made Time Bandits and Ian Holm had played Napoleon in that. And Ian was extraordinary because I'd never seen him do comedy before. And he was a brilliant comedian. And we became really, we trusted each other. We really respected and liked each other. So when it came to Brazil, he was doing things he had never done before. Jonathan Price used to say, what's he doing? I don't understand this. And, and I, I, I talked to Ian, he said, well, I'm just trying something out. I don't know if it'll work. I might, it might be a complete disaster. But I know you won't put it in the finished film if it doesn't work. And that was the key. And I don't know. It's just you have to earn trust is what you have to. And to earn trust, you've got to know what you're doing to a certain degree. <laughs> but that's, that's perhaps part of that pleasure is that you have actors like Matt Damon, a return for Zero mm. Theorem recently, Jeff Bridges and two of your films. The, the pleasure for them of actually being able to experiment, of being given that yeah. space rather than being shoehorned into a role. Yeah. And you get more money when you're shoehorned, <laughs> shoehorned in than you do working on my things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just wonderful. I mean, Matt on Zero Theorem, I said I got this thing. It's a small part. I only need you for a couple of days, maybe four days, and I'll send you the script. He said, don't bother. I'm in. <laughs> I mean, and I think his performance in Zero it's Theorem is extraordinary. It's a wonderful character. I've never seen Matt do anything like that before. And great. We've got time for a couple more questions. Hello, Brother Terry. Hi. Um, lots of love, first oh, of all. Hi. Hi. Uh, do you meditate? And also, are you vegetarian? <laughs> what? Do you meditate? No. no. I don't Neither. meditate. I stare no. at my computer screen. Okay. Which it may be meditation, because I'm a victim, I'm a completely a prisoner of my computer screen. Right, like everybody else seems to be. But you talk about nature, so maybe you could get away from the computer screen and wander no. into the back garden, regular. No, I do have a big back garden, that's the key to it, it's a big one. And, it's, it's, and it goes, the great thing is, it ends in Highgate Cemetery. So, it's a simple path. From work to the grave. <laughs> right there. Down the Straight back to the ancestry. <laughs> also, with the, you know, the saturation of shit in media world, yeah. do you ever get disheartened and think you're just going to sack the whole lot off? Or have you ever felt like that? Every day. That's how I feel every day. I mean, I'm literally getting ready to give up all the time. It's, uh, it just is very hard out there. Films at the moment are not in a great shape. Either you do you know, a $200 million film or you do an under $10 million film. I'm a $20 million film guy. There's no much money in there. It's, it's really hard and it's like, and you know, you think, okay, I've done a lot of films, made a lot of money. It doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to the studios either. <laughs> That's the worst part of it. It's, and so, you, yeah, you spend most of your time being depressed is I think what it is. And it's, I remember what I did, Munchausen, after Brazil was a nightmare, it was a nightmare getting it out, it didn't make any money. Again, I was gonna give up and then I started thinking about my kids. And that was the reason why Sally Salt is the kind of the hero, heroine of the movie, is my daughter. So I wrote something, ah, because my kids uh, revivified me and uh, keep me going. And that's, that's how it works. So hopefully you're surrounded by people who they may not love you, but at least they like you enough to be nice occasionally. <laughs> you haven't died, you it's haven't lived enough, in vain. It's, it's not the be all end all of life, is it? No, no, you're always going to be left frustrated. Yeah. You just got to keep You keep making. doing it. You keep yeah. doing it. I don't know why everything is sort of encouraged to think it's all going to be easy and fun. And mm. you've got rights, human rights to, uh, you've, you've got, it's, I love, I just read a phrase, the unhappy pursuit of happiness is, uh, which America, you're guaranteed in, in, in the Constitution, the, uh, the pursuit of happiness. <clears throat> it doesn't mean you're going to find it. It doesn't mean it's going to be pleasurable. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a thing to pursue, but you've got to understand what brings you happiness. I know my iPhone brings me happiness, but that's, that's me. I'm simple. <laughs> but you know, we're, caught, we're in the most materialistic age ever, I think, humans have ever lived in. Mm -hmm. And the toys are out there. All the stuff is there to tempt and pretend it'll give you, bring you happiness, fulfillment, anything. Uh, and it's all—it's bullshit. It's not—it's not it. And I don't know how we get back to something more, um, more profound. I love Italy. I love Catholic. I'm, I'm a Protestant, born Protestant. I begin to think I, I, 
deep down want to be a Catholic because showbiz is really good in Catholicism. And, and in Italy and all, they have you know, holy days all over the place for all these different saints. Our holy days are very simple. We have bank holy days. That's it. <laughs> Says something about us. And the guys at the top of Catholic Church get to wear fantastic dresses as well. That's the dream. <laughs> exactly. Um, we, we are actually going to be having this session every week. Uh, the three of us will be on stage. We're going to call it The Optimist. <laughs> Please feel free to come every Sunday. Um, one final question here. Hello. Make it Hi. a happy one. <laughs> um, I'm, my background is in environmental science and fantasy. And so my, my question is, um, how much do you use uh, science and stories from the news and real people to inspire you in your films? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm aware of science. Also. There's, a, there's a really good um, website called The Edge. Do you know about The Edge? A little bit, yes. The Edge is really good because it basically it's uh, a gathering of all the, the really good science minds and they write pieces. There's, there's questions answered and all these people contribute. It's fantastic. It's wonderful to you know, there's science, it's doing a fantastic thing. I still am not convinced it's going to solve it all because viruses are faster than science, mm. is what I know. There's always, I don't want to control the world. I think too many people think science is about controlling the world. I think you can limit uh, the dangers out there, but mm. you can't control it. And the more we come to terms with that, we'd be better. And I wish, rather than spending all that money to get to Mars, we would concentrate on just keeping this rather beautiful planet up and running. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think there are many directors in the history of cinema who have such an epic vision of the world and their, their own imagination. Uh, copies of the book of this exhibition are available outside, and I believe a number of them either are being signed or have been signed by both Phil and Terry, and you can buy them outside, so please do. I think you are going to sign them. Um, so just go outside and ask. You might have to wait a couple of minutes um, for that. Like I said at the beginning, if you haven't been out and about and looked at the exhibition, do stick around. There are some absolutely beautiful photographs out in this collection um, outside. And also Terry's book, Gilliam Esque, which is really quite a wonderful uh, memoir, is now available to buy in bookshops. Thank you very much to BAFTA to organ for organising this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Phil and Terry? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.